0: Welcome everybody to another episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast your favorite world war ii based podcast and if you're a parent like the three of us here over at the what's to scuttlebutt podcast there's a very good chance that it is your child's spring break and as with most kids they want to do things on their spring break and at the fact that it's 9 30 and i'm still at work we have another unscheduled redeployment episode for you but don't worry but don't worry we actually have guests scheduled for every show through the month of april so i can guarantee you we will be here every Monday for the next 5 episodes. So on this week's redeployment episode, we're going to go back to episode 29. I figure we would follow up in our series of authors we've had on the podcast because it has become very clear that you guys enjoy the books that we recommend and we have been getting a lot of emails from you guys about the books we recommend. And if you would like to email us, please do so at mail call at wtspworldwar2.com. But this week's redeployment episode, we're going back to episode 29 with author Clay Bonnyman-Evans. Now, if that last name sounds familiar to you, that's because his grandfather was the one and only First Lieutenant Alexander Sandy Bonnyman Jr., the Medal of Honor recipient, and we're going to discuss his book, Bones of My Grandfather. Now, in this episode, you will hear a conversation about an upcoming event that has now already taken place, because once again, this is episode 29, and that was the anniversary of the Tarawa landings, that was held in Fort Morgan, Alabama. I did have the privilege of riding on the landing craft with Mr. Bonnyman Evans behind me. And I have a photo over my shoulder. You can see where he was kind of visualizing, experiencing what his grandfather went on that day, being on that landing craft. So that was a very interesting experience after this interview. But I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Clay Bonnieman Evans discussing his book, Bones of My Grandfather. I strongly recommend it. It's another great book to add to your library, especially if you're trying to expand your library on PTO-based books. So go ahead and add Bones of My Grandfather to your collection and enjoy this redeployment episode, episode 29, with me and Clay Bonnyman-Evans. And welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your new favorite World War II podcast. And yes, friends, I know we've been away for a while. We had to go through a little reorganization. We had to find a new host. But all that stuff's been taken care of. A little personal news, just because I like to be up front with everybody. We had some great interviews scheduled about two weeks ago. But due to some family tragedy in my family... And the loss of two family members within a week. Um, I had to take some time away and reschedule. But uh, we're back to it. We're going to try to line up some new shows, bring you a little bit new format, and try to bring you the show we feel you deserve. Before we get on with things tonight, I want to recommend to everybody a Netflix show that you may have seen or may not even be aware of. But it's a very cool concept. It is called Churchill Secret Agents, The New Recruits. And basically what they do is they get some British officers and historians. They get authentic error correct uniforms and training. And they recreate the OSS training facilities and training program that originated in 1942. And they get modern day um, volunteers, if you will. They draft modern day people. And they actually put them through the same rigorous training, psychological training, actually from the book of training from the OSS. Obviously with some of the more dangerous physical um, obstacle courses, they have modern day safety gear intact. Um, But it's a very cool show. You can actually see what the OSS operatives did as far as training goes, the psychological profiles they had to go through. It's a very cool show. It's only a few episodes long. Check it out. It's on Netflix. Churchill, secret agents, the new recruits, highly recommend it. And previously, I uh, referred to the hosting change. Most of you, I believe, found us on iTunes podcast, which you can still find us. The easiest way to find us is type in WTSP in the search engine on your Apple iTunes. We are still on the Stitcher app. You can find us on the Stitcher app. Um, The easiest way to find everything about us is through d-410.com. And of course what's the Now I've never mentioned this in the past, but I believe it's very important to bring up to everybody. Due to the fact that what's the scuttlebutt is a very popular name, the website what's the with T's in it has been taken. That's right, it was taken, and I failed to mention in the past that our website, what's the is not spelled exactly correctly. It's scuttle with D's, two D's instead of Ts, so it's what's the S C U D D L E B-U-T-T dot com. Easiest way to find it, though, is go through d-410.com. Um, and if you're an iTunes listener, please give us a rating and a review. That would be fantastic. And a little Hollywood news update for those of you living over on the other side of the pond who are reenactors. U.S. Army D-Day Rangers and Weimar reenactors are being sought out by U.S. film producer Hugh Daly to take part in his hit TV show, Legendary Locations. The Hollywood-based producer needs a number of Rangers in full kit, complete with dummy weapons, as well as Weimar soldiers who will be available for filming at the Maisie Battery site in Normandy, France on October 18th. Producer Hugh Daly stated each man will need to have a full uniform and his own personal equipment plus a deactivated or airsoft non-firing period-correct weapon and of course our filming requires age-appropriate soldiers. So unfortunately for old guys like me in their 40s. We're not available for this gig, so anyone interested in taking part is requested to send a photograph of themselves in uniform to Hugh Daly at TrueBrit61 at iCloud.com, stating their name, age, phone number, and the producer or director will then contact the most suitable candidates to discuss their roles in more detail. The filming at Macy comes off the back of a brand new two-volume book detailing the role of the U.S. Army Rangers in 1944. The book titled, Cover-Up at Pointe du Hoc, a pen and sword publishing, has been described by senior military lecturers as the most accurate account of D-Day Rangers ever written, and it is due for release in November 2018. So, if you want to possibly get an active role in this upcoming production, get that information sent out. I would do it if I was, well, one, not 40, and two, lived over... In Europe, once again, send your information to TrueBrit61 at iCloud.com, stating your name, age, and phone number, and they will get back to you. And joining us on the phone for this week's episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, its author Clay Bonnieman Evans, and he's here to promote his book, Bones of My Grandfather, the story of his grandfather, one first lieutenant Alexander Sandy Bonnieman Jr. Mr. Evans, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm not doing too bad. Um this is actually the, um, my comeback show, if you will. Um, we've put together 29 episodes since January. We do about one a week. Um, our original goal was to try to find as many World War II vets as we can, but as you know, they're getting harder and harder to find. And so the show mm-hmm. kind of spun off more into uh, World War II reenacting as well as all things World War, World War II. We tried to interview as many authors, uh, producers, Anyone with any interest of getting the history of World War II out there, and I'm super excited to have you join us tonight. Um, first things first, let's get a little background history on you, if you don't mind. Sure.
1: Well, I, uh, you know, I I grew up, uh, was, was born and raised in Colorado and spent most of my life in the Rocky Mountains, uh, you know, Wyoming, New Mexico, places like that. Um, I have been a journalist uh for a lot of my life. I've also done some sort of PR work and things like that. And um I'm now a freelance writer and I've published four books. This this most recent book, which is about my grandfather, um, Alexander Bonnieman or Sandy as he was known, really has, you know, con- almost consumed my life in, in the very best possible way since about two thousand ten when I really sort of plunged headlong into into the subject matter of this book.
0: Well, the first thing, you kind of answered one of my first questions, which was um, reading this book, I love the way you laid it out. Um, the reading is super compelling. It's very easy to follow along with, but I love the fact that you kind of switch back and forth. You lay out your grandfather's early childhood history in one chapter. The next chapter, you'll start off in his military his. you know, how he, you know his enlistment in the military then the next chapter you'll kind of switch to how you got started in the recovery of going down to Tarawa and trying to help locate his his uh, remains and then the next chapter you'll go back to more of his childhood and his his um, teenage years and so even though it bounces around it's very easy to follow and it's it's a nice way to get all the information across in a very concise uh, conducive way and it's really a really fantastic read and I love that and, you know, before you came on and said you, you have m- multiple other books in journalism, I was going to compliment you on the great style of writing that you did on this book. And now that I know that you have, you know, years of journalism and other books underneath your belt, it makes a lot more sense on how great this book is when it comes to the layout and the reading of it. Well, thanks.
1: Thanks. I really appreciate the compliment. You know, um, yeah, it helps that I've been paid to be a writer for you know 30 or more years really or close to 30 years I guess it is and and honestly it's interesting that you bring up that sort of structure that this book is the story of my grandfather um and what I tell people is it's sort of about my grandfather um in, in in body mind and spirit and what I mean by that is that you know, my grandfather was the great hero of our family. Uh, He received the Medal of Honor uh, posthumously after he was killed in the Battle of Tarawa on November 22nd, 1943. My mother, who's still living uh, in Colorado, was his oldest child, and so she was the one who actually received that medal. And what that meant was, for me as a little boy and growing up, you know, my whole life, that Medal of Honor was hanging on the wall, and 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 I just you know I really admired my grandfather and and, and 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 I looked at that medal and we had a great portrait that was done of him posthumously and so you know I knew the outlines of his story but really our whole family kind of was content to leave it there outlines and and what happened in 2010 really 2009 late like 2009. I had always been told by my mother that my grandfather's remains were buried in the punch bowl on Oahu in Hawaii. And in 2009, her younger sister sent me an email that set me down a trail uh, of kind of investigation, and I learned that, in fact, he probably had not been taken back to Hawaii and was still buried on this teeny, tiny little island in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific. So really starting with that, I got very intrigued. Um, You know, I won't go into all the details, but I I got involved with an effort to find not only his remains, but those of hundreds of other Marines on this teeny little island. And, And the book, to get back to what you were saying about the structure, it really does go back and forth in time because as this effort was ongoing, to recover his remains, unbury him, if you will, in his physical remains. I undertook the effort to unbury his, his, if you will, his spiritual remains, his life story that had really been lost, even to my own family. So the book goes back and forth in time, telling the story of my grandfather and the story of this contemporary effort. And it's very important that I mention this. This effort is due almost entirely to the work and the persistence of a man named Mark Noah, who started a nonprofit called History Flight. And that is the organization that I decided to hitch my cart to and was very, very uh, fortunate to be part of the effort to recover my grandfather in 2015.
0: Well, I think a lot of my listeners may be somewhat um, familiar with this gentleman through the uh, documentary series, The Return to Tarawa. He had a... uh... You know, a few scenes in that outlaying his research and his maps. But um, I kind of want to get to that here in a minute. But what I want to ask you, you brought up that you kind of got into this in around 2009. But reading the book and reading some of the interviews that you did with some of the gentlemen who fought alongside your grandfather, a few of them in particular that made references to past letters that they had written to your grandmother, um, by the time 2009 rolled around, had your family, and particularly the, the elders in your family, have they kind of been, I don't want to say tiresome, but kind of just off-put from the constant, because I'm sure every time an interview, a book, a magazine, a movie, a comic strip from 1947 to 2009, I'm sure they're constantly getting inundated with questions. Um, as you alluded to in the book, They got different accounts of what happened to your grandfather. Sometimes they got two or three accounts from the same eyewitness who was going back and, you know, revisiting his own memories. Was it kind of, when you got involved in 2009, was some of your other family members just, for lack of a better phrase, kind of over it? I don't know that they were
1: over it. I mean, the truth is we just were very content in general to let the broad outlines of this story stand which was we knew he had you know the very very general outlines of how he'd lived his life, and that he had gone off to join the marine corps at age thirty one he was a father, a husband, he owned uh, a business that was critical to the war effort he didn't have to go mm-hmm. and yet and and yet he did and and he chose to go he was from a very prominent wealthy family, he could have uh certainly. Uh, gotten into the army or navy you know an officer's program but he didn't want to do that i tell people i think my grandfather was add he didn't like sitting still he didn't like sitting at a desk he didn't like wearing a tie and when it came to world war ii he wanted to be in on the action so he joined the marines at age 31 he was actually 32 by the time he got to uh, boot camp but but he the guys around him were eighteen, nineteen, seventeen, twenty years old, so he was the old man um and he you know so we knew these things generally, but we didn't know a lot and the older generation had all died um his younger brother, much younger brother, had died in two thousand four, and my mother uh, and her younger sister, my auntie, who lives in Hawaii, they just didn't know very much, so the truth is our family had been pretty content to just kind of have these, these vague outlines and I being a journalist and being a kind of obsessive person, I said, I got to know as much about this guy as I possibly can. And you mentioned, uh, letters and so forth. And I just have to say, I am extremely fortunate. Uh, you know, I'm a journalist. I know how to do research. I'm, I'm fortunate to have the connection to this man and I'm fortunate <clears throat> to have a family that not only wrote a lot of letters, but they saved everything. And so when I really got going on this, I just contacted family members and I said, Hey, take a look in your basement. See if you've got anything that might be of interest. And, and I would be really grateful if you'd pass it along. And I got to tell you, I found amazing stuff. My mother was not an organized person, but I started going through her stuff, finding amazing things, and then getting just astonishing treasure troves of letters from that time, from World War II and after, um, from, from a number of different relatives. So I was incredibly fortunate. And this book is based very, very heavily on those letters and military documents and so forth. I think I've got, I think I counted them up recently. I think there's almost 500 footnotes in this book. That's, that, that's how well researched, you know, I, that, that's how much priority I put on research and finding those things to really support what I was writing about.
0: Absolutely. And I want to back up just a little bit because you mentioned something that I think really underscores the character of your grandfather. Um, when you said he had a, a uh, successful business that, Contribute to the war effort, he did, and it was at that time very profitable. But um, I want the listeners to understand: no, he did not go and join a officer's training program. He enlisted as a private in the United States Marine Corps. I mean, he yeah at thirty one, yeah at he thir- had to at thirty two. Yep, yeah, because he didn't yeah, have. And- the, uh, college, the college degree, and he didn't have all the other requirements that the Marine Corps required for offset training school. And so his only option right. to fulfill his desire to fight for his country was to enlist as a private in the United States Marine Corps and leave his family behind, because not only did he have a business, but he had a wife and three children? That's right, three daughters. Yeah, that's right. Well, he, he
1: didn't qualify because... You had to be no older than 27, and uh, you weren't supposed to be married. And the exceptions they made were people with a college degree and so forth. And my grandfather had attended Princeton, played football there. But again, as as I say, he wasn't a guy who liked sitting at a desk. And he, he he didn't want to stay in college. He left. He got kicked out, to tell you the truth. And he went out and and sort of found a life of adventure, which is what he really wanted. So he was a buck private, and he went in new, and he was knew, knowing he was going to be a buck private. And you know, fortunately, in training in San Diego, uh, he his natural leadership abilities became very apparent to his superior officers, particularly um, a colonel. Uh, highly unusual my grandfather was at that time had been made a a corporal and his best buddy was a colonel and he socialized with him and colonel gilder jackson recognized his leadership potential. he said listen i know you think you want to be a grunt and go with these guys and that's fine but i'm going to file the paperwork because i don't want to waste your leadership ability and and thankfully colonel jackson did that because that actually paved the way. When my grandfather got overseas, he continued to perform uh, to a high degree of excellence. And and uh, by he went overseas in October '42. Um, by January '43, he had been made a second lieutenant. And a couple months before he was killed in the Battle of Tarawa, he had been promoted to first lieutenant. So that's pretty impressive. It was about fourteen months from buck private to first lieutenant and and we can thank in part colonel jackson for that
0: and it's because of his business running mining operations and his knowledge of heavy equipment um the physics of digging and explosives and explosives that got him which the marine corps is very good at figuring out what you're good at and no i don't want to say exploiting that but using that to their benefit that they put him in an engineering battalion
1: yep they, 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 they wanted to take advantage of that background he had. He had worked for his father's coal mining company um, as well as uh, some, gotten some jobs, you know, to learn demolitions and so forth that were after he left Princeton, you know, um, down in Virginia. To You know, he, he got the ropes. He learned the ropes of that. And that's the kind of thing he liked doing. He liked doing physical things. So he was, uh, he had demolition expertise. And that is why they put him in, as he put it, his old business and put him with, put him with an engineering battalion, a pioneer battalion. Uh, so he wound up, he shipped over with a different unit, but he wound up, uh, with 218, um, tech battalion, 18th Marines, uh, which was attached to 28 for the battle of Tarwa. And that was a pioneer engineering battalion.
0: And before he landed on Tarawa, he did spend some time on Guadalcanal at the end of that campaign, helping to build the infrastructure that would be later used for the stationing of Marines and Army and Naval and Army Air Corps personnel throughout the war. So before he even went to Tarawa, he did spend some time on Guadalcanal and had some minor um, engagements there with the enemy, which kind of made him realize what it was all about, and I guess... Obviously, between Guadalcanal and Tarawa, they had some time in New Zealand in which he kind of looked back on that engagement in Guadalcanal and just kind of, because boredom boredom is the death of morale when it comes to the Marines and any sort of hurry up and wait situation. And when you're sitting in New Zealand for nine months, um, there's only so much you can do to occupy your time. And so when they found out they're shipping out, he was kind of raring to go.
1: It certainly was well as you know the the first marine division really was uh you know had fought at Guadalcanal from august 7th. 42 uh at, yeah and and uh and, and and then the second marine division came in to help mop up and because my grandfather was he was the second lieutenant at that time He was with that that engineering um unit he was put in charge with rebuilding a bridge over what was called the toha river and during that, while he was there, he was only there for about a month or so, he actually experienced his first combat in his unit uh, clash with a Japanese patrol. And and he, you know, he, he was glad to get that combat. He was pleased to find the action. He had to go back to New Zealand, as you say. You know, um, they were there for a really long time. They were training. They were doing this and that. And it, it was hard on him. He was raring to go. He was itching to go. He'd gotten that taste of combat, and as he wrote his wife, my grandmother, you know, the First Marine Division had really set an example, uh, you know, in taking Guadalcanal in, in six months of, not six months, five, five, four or five months of really, really tough fighting. It, he, he wanted to put his mark on that war, and he got his opportunity, finally. Uh, in November of 1943, when he and the rest of the Marines of the Second Division sailed for, um, they really sailed for the Solomon Islands, um, where they did some amphibious uh, assault training, and then went off to Tarawa. They didn't even know they were where they were going until they were underway. So it was it was quite a big secret.
0: And back to his, you know, his combat that he faced on Guadalcanal, not to give too much away because I really want people to go out and buy bones of my grandfather and not to give away the story, but there are some stories you tell from his childhood where your grandfather wasn't known to back down from a fight. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that once he engaged in his first combat action, that it really kind of got his, his uh, fluids going, if you know what I mean.
1: Oh yeah. Well, like I say, I mean, the way I think of him he was just a man of action. He was, depending on who you talk to, he was a daredevil uh, or he was reckless. He was impetuous or he was courageous. But the fact of the matter is he was a guy who liked to test himself. He was what we would call an adrenaline junkie today. He, you know, there's a little story I tell in the book about how he used to freak everybody out because there was a cement swimming pool at his parents' house in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, from the time he was a boy until he was, you know, a grown man, he used to love to to run up the roof of the bathhouse and just hurl himself about 12, 15 feet across the cement into the water and just terrify his parents and everybody was watching. He was a guy who did not back down from a fight. He liked to have a drink, and when he got going, he he enjoyed that kind of thing. Um, so he, he also, uh, it's worth probably pointing out, he, he didn't turn out to have the skills uh, to make the grade, but all the way back in 1932, looking for adventure, he joined the U.S. Army Air Corps because he had hoped to become a pilot. So he did train down in San Antonio and ultimately was found not to be what they were looking for, but he received an honorable discharge with uh, an evaluation of excellent character. So that was that was many years before he joined the Marine Corps.
0: And that was something else I wanted to compliment you on, uh, reading this book. Um, And I kind of know from personal experience because prior to podcasting, I also did terrestrial radio for five and a half years. And there was times Mm -hmm. when I told stories about my family. And when I first got into it, you're reluctant about saying something that someone from the outside world may be as disparaging. And so you sort of censor yourself at first, which impacts your ability to tell a story. Whereas over time, you get over that. One of the things I want to compliment you on is your honesty about your family member's not only your grandfather, but maybe your grandmother and a few other family members, there are certain uh, stories or um, things in this book that as a reader, you sit back and say, okay, this guy is being honest with us because he's saying some things that maybe some of us would kind of, I don't want to say modify, but maybe not be so open with about when it comes to the character of certain personnel and their family. But your honesty when it comes to telling these stories Um, makes me, the reader, believe that you're not trying to prop your grandfather up to be something that he wasn't. You actually lay out all the conflicting stories about his death and what some people say and other things. And that honesty came through, and I really want to compliment you on that, because it is not easy to openly, you know, be honest about your family. And I just hope you take great pride in that. Well, thanks. It
1: was actually, like I say, I'm a journalist, so my training was all... You follow the reporting where it goes, and you report what you find. You don't censor. You don't. You don't try to shape what you're writing. To your you, your your job is to do the reporting and and report what you find, and that's what I vowed to do. And you know, I just heard a quote today on a podcast. Actually, actually, it was from a book I was listening to. In it, and it, it's an old saying. I can't tell you who said it, but the line between good and bad runs through every human heart and my grandfather's nephew who is uh my a cousin of my mother's and mine he's he's 85 he's a catholic deacon you know he said i don't remember where that him in the book but he was like look we all fall short and i wanted to just tell the truth about my grandfather the way that i would try to tell the truth about myself because here's the thing it's easy to to take somebody who's done something heroic, as my grandfather did, and history tends to whitewash these people, uh, or we even now make movies about people, and, 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 and we just portray them as almost demigods. Well, guess what? We're not. We're human beings. And to me, my grandfather was an incredibly admirable person with unbelievable assets, um, and he was complicated, like all of us. That's more interesting to me, Mm -hmm. because it's more true, it's more real, than if we've got a story, and I won't mention the book, but it drives me crazy. It was a big bestseller that portrayed a guy as almost like superhuman, and none of us are superhuman. And my grandfather had incredible assets, um, and he used those assets, especially on that day that he died. It was very, very much in keeping with his character what he did to receive that medal of honor. I just think it's a much better, truer, more human story knowing that he was a real man like you or me or anybody. He had his flaws. He had his quirk. That's a better story than if we whitewash it, I think.
0: And that's the nice thing about the chapter where you start talking about the multiple different stories about how he, his demise came you took your journalistic spirit and you took that clarity and you actually said, hey, some of these stories I've read, they to me and to other people it seems like there's a lot of artistic licensing taken and it almost got to a comic book or movie-esque level and you did your damnedest to try to separate the truth from the embellishment in an effort to try to at least try to provide as much clarity and evidence of what really happened on that day because there are so many conflicting stories. And so that was a nice aspect of it too. And I just want to ask you, once again, this is a, a great book. It's Bones of My Grandfather, and I don't want to give too much away, but do you feel by the end of this book that you found the closest to the truth of how your grandfather died on that day?
1: Boy, I really do. I mean, I... Uh, You know, like you say, there are versions that got sort of passed along over the years or put into a comic strip literally that overstated certain things. And then there were some versions that really undermined, you know, what he had done. And here I am, you know, decades and decades later reading all this stuff and and saying, well, what is what's the truth? I wasn't there. I'm never going to be there. There is. Shockingly, some film of the beginning of the assault in which he was killed. There's film you can see online uh, that probably that captured my grandfather probably within a minute or two of his death. We don't get his death uh, on the on camera, but so there's all kinds of stuff for me to go through. Here's the amazing thing: you know, I got all the documents from his his military records. I got all the letters. I read all the accounts I could, but here's what really, there's two things that really, really um, made the difference. And the first was, you know, I I know it sounds like I'm spoiling the book, but it's pretty obvious from the photographs and so forth that this is the case. The first was we found his remains um, after 71 and a half years where they have been lost in the sands of Tarawa that long. And those physical remains are, in, are the very best gold standard of evidence that you could ever have if you had to introduce it into court that really, really told us, gave us a lot of information, gave me a lot of information about definitely, definitely what didn't happen yeah. that day, and also some really powerful information about what seems to have happened. So that was number one. Number two And this is just, I'm so incredibly fortunate, but this story attracted some media interest and I wound up getting on TV here and there and in the newspaper. And over the years from 2010 to 2015, 2016, I was fortunate to be contacted by men who were there, who witnessed what happened that day. And those guys, were able to tell me in very, you know, clear, lucid prose, everything they saw, and so between everything I had, I was really able to piece it together. And I think I've given a very definitive account. There's still some, you know, little bit of uncertainty about this or that, but basically I think that I have built a really, really powerful case. Uh, and I think we know how my grandfather died.
0: Well, and the silver lining to your grandfather being part of this story. Not to use a weird um, metaphor, but to have that spotlight shined on him brought light to the rest of the band, meaning the other gentlemen who were still lost on that on that atoll. And so, by having that spotlight, because of who he was and the things he did, and the fact that he was a he was number four of three of he was number four along with three others to be awarded the Medal of Honor for their actions on Tarawa. By that spotlight, it brought more attention to the whole story to all the other lost boys who were never brought home and so you know that would be the the you know the silver lining to that spotlight
1: no i i agree and, and listen it's important to say and i really mean this my grandfather his name was inevitably associated with this because of the four recipients of the medal of honor he was the only one whose ultimate whereabouts were unknown and so he was officially mia we knew he was killed in action but he was officially MIA. Inevitably, that made him a focus of media, and, and you know, people talked about him, when when people doing this work were writing reports to Congress and so forth, they, they mentioned my grandfather. But ultimately, he was no more or less important than any one of those roughly uh, other, uh, roughly 1,100 Americans who were killed in that battle. And that includes four to five hundred, we don't know exactly how many, who never came home. Their remains were never found despite the efforts of Army Graves registration in nineteen forty six through nineteen fifty. And so it it really it, it was helpful, you know. Uh he he was no better. He was no more valuable than um, Elmer Matthews, who is is one of the guys that we recovered in the same trench. And and, and, and I spoke to a guy uh, who, who's still living, who was a radio operator, who was right next to Elmer Matthews the day he was killed, uh, you know. And he's no better than Ronald Bosmer, who is a guy who was from Denver. And I went to his funeral, and I got to meet so many of his family members. And all these guys, and I just want to say again, History Flight, Mark Noah's organization has had incredible success. Working in this very, very challenging environment uh, on the tiny, tiny island of Basho in the, in the Tarawa Atoll, recovering these remains. And at this point, uh, more than a hundred uh, intact sets of remains that history flights recovered. And we have teams down there pretty much 365 days a year. Lots of volunteers. These are professionals, uh, archaeologists, surveyors demolitions experts who want to be part of this many of them volunteers and then and then some paid staff so we're down there looking for every last one of those guys uh and yes i think it, i think it's fair to say thank you to sandy bonum because your notoriety my grandfather's notoriety helped shine a spotlight on the fact that these guys had never been brought home and now they're being brought home
0: but it wasn't an easy journey for Honor Flight either because when, – when did they get started down there? Um, well, uh, History, History Flight yeah, – uh, History Mark, Flight, I apologize.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's okay. It's a real common thing. Honor Flight is a great organization yep. too. And History Flight, it's a funny name. It, it doesn't reflect what we do now. But it was started by Mark, who's a pilot, uh, as a as a World War II warbird organization, and that's what it was started for. And the name just never changed. We don't do that anymore. Mark sold the aircraft to fund this MIA research and, and recovery. But yeah, Mark and his organization, um, Mark has raised raised all this private money. He did all the research, and you know every obstacle in the world was thrown up in front of him. By I'm sad to say. Mm-hmm. Not 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 just the government of the, the little country where it's called Kiribati, where this island is, and mostly they've been cooperative, but sometimes they weren't. But also, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense has an organization whose job it is to find and repatriate, recover uh, uh, overseas battlefield remains, and and honestly they threw up a lot of obstacles for mark for many many years now i want to emphasize congress got after those mm-hmm. organizations they reorganized them they spanked them hard and they are doing much better work because of it and and history flight has a good solid working relationship with them now
0: well and, but, and that's the road i was starting to go down without giving away too much details but mark his desire and his passion for this project allowed him to take these hits, um, because in the early days before they had personnel change in these two organizations that we won't get into, um, they kind of saw him as um, interference, uh, as someone who's going to, as an outsider, a civilian coming in telling them how to do their job. But his research and the amount of work that he put into this it's like, how can you not look at it? And, it? and there were certain points that almost seemed like they intentionally looked at it. And then let's go over here at a couple hundred yards just to kind of make him look bad. But once, as you said, over the years there was personnel change. But when you first got hooked up with this whole idea of going down there to try to recover your grandfather's remains, um, obviously you didn't know the network down there. And there was one particular gentleman who reached out to you who said, hey, come down here. I can help you find a hotel. I got some people help you with logistics. Unbeknownst to you, he was basically hoping to tie your family name to a project that he was wanting to work on. And once you made it clear that, hey, I'm not coming down here to sponsor anybody's project or endorse anything. I'm just coming down here on behalf of my family to find my grandfather, that person kind of not only took away all the resources he had assigned for you, including the hotel room, but he kind of tried to sour your name as well as Mark's name in history flight. And that put up a lot of roadblocks during your first trip down there.
1: Yeah. You know, again, without the, all those sorted details are in the book, but mm-hmm. without getting into it here on the podcast, I just say, you know, it, it, it's not surprising, but it's disappointing that, there are an awful lot of people around who uh, they don't want to do the hard work. They don't want to raise the money. They don't want to put in the sweat equity that somebody like Mark Noah decided to do. Uh, and what they want to do is piggyback on somebody else's work or in some cases try to steal credit for that work. And I, I, I mean, I, I am I'm enraged because it's still happening all these years later, on Memorial Day this year, or just before Memorial Day, <laughs> the person you're referring to went on a national, a, a national TV news program, uh, morning show, and
0: lied through his teeth. And 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 that well, seems and, to be his claimed. MO at this point.
1: Oh well, not, yeah. not that I know
0: the man, but just.
1: From yeah, reading no, no, the story, well,
0: it just seems like that's yeah. kind of how he makes his way through the entertainment well, world.
1: Well, it's and it's just disappointing. I mean, he's a particularly egregious example, but he's not the only one. Yeah, and I I just tell people as often and as loudly as I can, if you want to know who deserves credit for the ongoing recovery of now a hundred or more. Uh, missing U.S. personnel from this battle in 1943 on tarawa It's history flight, history flight, history flight. And Mark Noah is the man that made it happen. Uh, It is not the U.S. government. It is no other organization. There's no filmmaker. There's no advocate. There's nobody else out there who is responsible for this. And that's that's just an important message. Again, I continue to be... um, Pretty, I'm pretty shocked and jaded, uh, but I guess it takes all kinds. And so long as people know and they ask the right questions, they're going to get the answer. And that is, if you want to give the credit, it's history flight, history flight, history flight.
0: Just a little tease for the book. I just got to ask you, do you miss that pink bicycle? (laughs) Oh, my
1: little pink bicycle. You know what? I'll tell you what. People can read the read the story of the pink bicycle, but it it, it it they show this tiny little island is less than one square kilometer it's covered with twenty five thousand poor people, very nice people, but it's dirty it's, it's an you know it's not a pleasant place to be, but I'll tell you what having that bicycle freed me up to get around to everything I needed to see uh and yes, it was a pink lady's bicycle um and I I, that's kind of funny for a lot of different reasons but I'll tell you what I have very fond memories of that pink bicycle because that was my first trip down there uh, and it was many years before we actually found my grandfather but that was the beginning so yay pink bicycle if I could find her I'd bring her back
0: (laughs) well kind of going back to what you're saying about you know history flight and mark being responsible for all this and not the government it's kind of sad, but that's almost where we're at in present day. That's why you have so many organizations like um, Wounded Warrior Projects, the Stan Haney Draft Fund. It seems like even with our modern day soldiers, granted through budgeting and, and political stuff, you know our soldiers don't get taken care of, you know, as well as they should. And so it it seems like as sad as it is, and this is one thing that's always drove my father crazy. He doesn't believe that the need for Wounded Warrior Projects and another, other charities should have to exist because the government should be taking care of these guys, but at the end of the day, they don't, and so that's why it takes great organizations like, you know, Mark Noe and History Flight to get the things done that the bureaucracy behind the government always steps in the way of until a little spotlight gets shined onto it, and then, politically or not, I don't want to go after any senators or congressmen, but... Once that spotlight shines on there a little bright, then some money starts getting kicked down appropriately. But then, as you experience, you got to hope that the right people are leading up these groups to spend the money appropriately to take care of the projects, whether it's this or modern day stuff. So it's kind of sad that it always takes good hearted people who aren't looking for notoriety, who have a passion for a particular project, whatever it may be, where the government seems to drop the ball to have to pick these, these things up to get the work done.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two little threads there. One is we, the people, are the ones that should be paying for these things, and obviously we're not. On the flip side of that, uh, as I learned all too well in this process, uh, sometimes uh, you can have a government agency with a $300 million a year budget that just doesn't, function that well or or doesn't care I'm not sure exactly what the story is and so I'm sometimes it takes somebody like Mark Noah who basically every time somebody threw up an obstacle he's the kind of guy a little bit like my grandfather who just got more determined he's a bulldog you try to pull that bone out of his teeth he's gonna grip it harder and this is a guy who raised all his own money for those first several years, many years of this work. He And on six, I don't know, six, seven, tops, $8 million had success in recovering dozens and dozens of, of remains when none, the, the, the U.S. government had not on its own recovered any, you know, since 1946, 47, 48, 49, And it's just impressive, and and it just shows, you know, what motivation can do. So, again, I want to say, History Flight today, we have a great relationship with the agency, the DPAA in Hawaii. Uh, It's a very cooperative relationship. It's working well. And I just want to say that agency, I know there were guys that uh, were not happy. Honestly, the Tarawa situation was sort of the beginning of, you know, when they started getting congressional scrutiny mm-hmm. and there were there, there are people there that weren't happy about that. And they thought, oh, you know, that they blame they blame us. They blame history flight. They blame Tarwa. But guess what? They got reorganized. They got more money. Hey, that's the kind of punishment I want. Absolutely. But they they do much better work because of it. They are now identifying I, I can't give you numbers, but I mean they got smart, and they started going after the remains in the USS Oklahoma at Pearl Harbor. They got smart, and they started digging up the Tarawa unknowns in the Punchbowl and identifying those. They got ordered by Congress to do a lot more work on the money they're doing, and they're doing it. So honestly, as I try to, as I say in the book, uh, the Tarawa Marines, and yes, there were some Navy personnel, of course. I think are responsible for this sort of second victory on Tarawa. And that is that, uh, you know, all these years later, from their grave, they helped kick this effort into high gear. And you know what? I I would have never said this five years ago, maybe even three years ago, but it wouldn't surprise me if one day we end up finding all those MIAs down there. And it'll take a long time, but I think because of this, uh, because of Mark Noah, because of the excellent work being done by the DPAA and the great cooperation now, I think that could happen. And I think that would be
0: great. And let's also point out that not only does Mark Noah and the guys you know, recover Marines, they recover everybody. If they recover Anybody. the remains of yep. the Japanese, they treat them the same yep. way. Because they are people. They were people. They treat those bones the same way as they do the Marines. They package them the same way. And they send them off to the Japanese government. So that if the family members wish, they can do the appropriate things with them. As well as, I think on Macon Island, there were some uh, Australian Coast Watchers who were lost. As well as a few uh, British soldiers as well. I got three questions I want to ask you before I let you go. Uh, First one. What was your first um, feeling when you, first time you walked on Red Beach 1? Well,
1: I actually walk a Red Beach 3 first because that's what, well, Red Beach 3 sort of doesn't really exist anymore, but I walk where it sort of would have been. It's been, it's been, uh, you know, landfilled and stuff. So, but when I walked on, 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 let's just say Red 2 was the first one that was still kind of the, in the same beach. Uh, it was powerful for me because I went down there at low tide so I could walk out on that reef. Uh, notoriously, uh, these Marines, uh, because of a misjudged high tide, had to be dumped into water six to eight, chest deep water six to 800 yards offshore and weighed into heavy Japanese fire. And because of that, um, hundreds, we don't know exactly how many, never made it out of the water. So here I was all these years later, perfectly safe. And I got to go on that beach and I got to walk out on that reef at low tide and turn around and look back and just close my eyes and think about those men um, and what they must have been going through. And I know they wanted to get that job done and and they were well trained, but I just, I just, I really was a, a, a real wave of emotion swept over me just realizing what they did and so many of them knowing that they weren't going to even come out of this battle, much less, you know, make it back home. So it was powerful and moving. And, and those, you know, people ask me, Oh, well, you know, did you you send your grandfather's spirit there and everything? I tell people not, not my grandfather specifically, but there's something about that place that retains that, that, that sadness and, and that heroism of that sacrifice that they made it was a different time, it was a different kind of warfare. Um and it was brutal and those guys walked right into it and you know, you really can pick up on it when you um when you're down there. And you know, we're going to uh, I'm very fortunate to have been invited to be part of the the small reenactment that we're going to do there at Fort Morgan. Um down at Gulf Shores, Alabama, Mm uh, to, to commemorate the Tarla invasion. And, you know, it's a, it's a a tiny sliver of, you know, uh, reenactment, but I, I, I'm really excited. I I know it can't ever even come close to being the same thing, but, but I, I, I think it's great that people want to remember and they want to honor them that way, you know, and they've actually got, Higgins votes in the whole thing, as I understand. So I'm pretty excited about that.
0: Yes, I will be a part of the reenactment. Uh, My group is, um, we have some of the largest numbers coming out of Florida. And as a reenactor, not only is it great that we're shining the light on Tarawa, but we are shining the light on the United States Marine Corps because in the reenacting world and in the reenacting community, most of the efforts and spotlight are on the ETO, and the European Theater of Operations. whereas the the PTO is greatly underrepresented in this hobby. And so we're hoping to turn this into a reoccurring event um, and to shine the light on the United States Marine Corps. And uh, I had two more questions real quick. Um, The bunker. I understand Uh that it's... um, The time that you got down there was kind of being used for storage for the uh, police station and all that, but I'm sure the... um, Because walking around that atoll, um, for those of you who don't know, it doesn't take much to put yourself back there because a lot of the stuff is still there. You'll still see blown out tanks, you'll see um, locations where they used to have block houses and guns and it is not uncommon for every time a construction project starts to unearth, you know, um, M1N blocks, helmet liners, Mm -hmm. um, rusted out 30 cal machine gun barrels, unspent artillery and so because the island is so poor they don't have the infrastructure or the equipment or even the logistics to take this stuff so a lot of it's still sitting there like in your book the picture of the tank that's still sitting in the shell hole that has been sitting in for 75 years now Mm -hmm. but when when you got to that when you got to that bunker what what was that like
1: Oh, well, you know, it, it's funny. It, it, people down there, it, most of the people don't speak English, even though that's the official language and so forth. Um, but those who do refer to it, I was, much to my uh, uh, gratification, I was very pleased. They refer to it as Bonham's Bunker, which is what we have always called it, you know, I, here in the United States and those who know the battle. it. It was my, if you will, it was my Valhalla, my Holy Grail. It was the place that I knew I had to see if I saw nothing else that first time I went to Tarawa. And it looks a lot different from it did the day my grandfather was killed, because back then it was covered with sand and coconut Mm -hmm. logs. But I was able to get up on top. And, you know, it it was very... (laughs) It's hard to explain. It's it, just amazing. I stopped and I closed my eyes and I just thought about it. And I stood on that leading edge where somewhere near within 10 feet of where I was, my grandfather had been shot. And, or, or not been shot necessarily, but had been killed all those years ago. It, 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 it was an amazing thing. It's interesting, it's called a bunker because it really wasn't a bunker. And the Marines did not know what it was. Uh, because it was covered with sand, but eventually they discovered it housed a generator and then was being used temporarily by Japanese troops who were sort of hiding out in there uh, when the assault was in full swing. So it's amazing that it's still there. Um, and it is, I I just, I mean, I, I don't even know how to talk about it, but the privilege that I have had as a grandson to be able to go back to this place, you know, where my grandfather lost his life, and just to, even the actual structure where it happened, still being there, that's, that's just remarkable. I mean, I can't imagine, you mentioned, you know, how the European theater gets all the attention, and I'm very, very glad mm-hmm. that the Pacific the, that the Pacific War, I mean, in our house, the Pacific War was everything, obviously, sure. but most most Americans don't know anything about it. So, you know, but but, I can't imagine there are many places where you could go in france or or Italy or Belgium or wherever, and you know sort of find the actual structure where a specific person gave his life and so it's it's a remarkable it's i mean it's just remarkable i'm I'm so lucky that I've gotten to be part of this, and thanks to Mark Noah and History Flight for. Uh, making me part of the actual recovery of my grandfather too i mean that's whoever gets to do that you know
0: last question for you the zippo is that in your family's possession or is it in a museum where's the zippo at (laughs) yeah
1: so i when we were recovering my grandfather mark felt that it wouldn't be appropriate for me to actually work on the actual recovery of the remains but i was down in the hole documenting and I did a little bit of work because I wanted to be able to, you know, say that I'd helped, you know, to actually excavate my grandfather. I was actually, I found a big lump of metal. And Mark has a hydrolyzing bath that he sets up in his little hotel room down there to uh, remove um, corrosion. And it turned out it was a Zippo lighter in surprisingly good shape. The wick was still there. I tried to light it, and, of course, the fuel had long ago become non-volatile but uh, what an amazing find but here's the thing my mother is the oldest child has has gotten over the years all the focus and attention and she had the medal you know we had the medal at our house and her her middle sister is no longer living but her younger sister really never got anything and so i made a point um at the funeral of my grandfather i told my mother i said I think we should give the flag that you've been given to my auntie Alex and she agreed. And I actually uh, talked to my cousin, my auntie's daughter and her boyfriend is a carpenter and he made a really nice little case for that Zippo lighter. And then we presented that to my auntie as well because you know, she's his daughter as well. She didn't know him cause she was just one year old when he left, but it was very important. So it is in her possession. Um, I'm sure one day it will wind up in a museum collection somewhere, but for now I'm very pleased that my auntie has it.
0: And I think that's a beautiful story and a great place to stop. Thank you so much, Clay Bonnieman evans author of Bones of My Grandfather. Where's the best place, other than Amazon, um, you would like people to go to pick up your book and your other books? What's your website so we can all check out the other books that you've written?
1: Yeah, you you can check out my website. I've got one that... ClayBonnieEvans.com. It's got a lot of different things on there. I do long distance hiking and book reviews, so maybe that you can go there if you want. But there is a website, BonesOfMyGrandfather.com, and this book uh, you should be able to get or order at any bookstore or from any online retailer. And um, I just, I just say in this day and age, uh, if somebody reads the book and they enjoyed it. Um, I getting those five-star reviews on Amazon is extremely important for just making sure that other readers who like similar kinds of things find the book. So you can get it anywhere, and uh, I hope people do enjoy the book if they read it.
0: Thank you so much, Clay, and I hope to uh, meet you down at the 75th anniversary of Tarawa at um, Fort Morgan, Alabama. I will be heading up the um, Heavy Weapons Battalion. And, uh, Excellent. Hope to see well, you there. Well,
1: I... I, I I'm 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 so excited! I've been told that I'm gonna be shore party, just like my grandfather. So Fantastic. I'm really really excited to go. It's gonna be great.
0: Oh, uh, that just reminded me. Your grandfather's, you know, his his time between Glada Canal and Tarawa was in New Zealand. About a year ago, a friend of mine was cleaning out a museum, and he does um, Army and you know the ETO. But he knew that my passion is in the PTO, even though I also do Army reenacting as well. But he gave me an original um jacket and pant from the Marine Corps and oh, inside wow. inside they were actually made in New Zealand. And wow. so that's one of my prized possessions that's in my closet. But when I look at that uniform, what the thing that just blows my mind is how small it is. One, I'm six five, yeah. so I can never wear it, but even <laughs> still it, you would you would have a hard time getting a modern day fourteen year old into this uniform because they were so small.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Well, we've gotten bigger. We know that yep. I, one of the, one of the interesting things is my grandfather was a tall guy, not compared to you, but he was one. Nobody else, and I mean nobody else in the family, uh, is that tall. We're all, if, if we got to 5'8, that was doing good. So, you know, it's sort of interesting that, that, you know, I, I get to, you know, if, you, if you will, you know, play the role of, of Sandy Bonneman as, as a short party guy. Uh, in the reenactment and of course i will be considerably shorter than my grandfather but hey that's the way it goes
0: well i will track you down on the beach i'm looking forward to it sir thank you so much for your time and i will talk to you soon
1: This has been a Digital 410 production.